Our scripture reading uh, this morning first comes from Psalm 94. Psalm 94, verses 1 through 11. Let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word, remembering uh, that this is indeed His inspired and inerrant revelation. Psalm 94, verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 16, verses 1 through 9 is our text. Then I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on earth the seven bowls of wrath of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became loathsome and malignant, a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please, as we... Amen. In the early 20th century, liberal scholars sought to reconstruct the Bible's presentation of God without the ideas of holiness and wrath. In his work, The Kingdom of God in America, H. Richard Niebuhr critiqued the liberal reconstruction of the Bible's message in these terms. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Attacks on the biblical doctrine of divine wrath continued in the 21st century, both within the church and outside the church. Atheists like Richard Hitchens and Richard Dawkins have maligned the Bible's teaching of of wrath and retributive justice as primitive and immoral. Hitchens writes, nothing proves the man-made character of religion as obviously as the sick mind that designed hell. Dawkins wrote that teaching children to believe in something like the punishment of sins in an eternal hell is a form of child abuse. In books printed by evangelical publishers, some authors deny that the Bible teaches a God who burns in anger against sinners and sin. For example, uh, Joel Green and Mark Baker write, the scriptures as a whole provide no ground for a portrait of an angry God needing to be appeased in atoning sacrifice. However popular these progressive, evangelical views may be for their attempts to make God more palatable to modern man. They're far from the Christianity of the Bible. The Old Testament speaks of God's wrath against sin, and the New Testament confirms God's angry judgment upon sin. The fifth cycle of visions here in Revelation 15 and 16, where the seven plagues are are poured out in seven bowls of wrath by the seven angels, as well as other passages, notably Romans chapter 1, provide clear proof that, that the scriptures as a whole, Old and New Testaments, provides substantial ground for the doctrine of God's wrath against sin. It began in the last two weeks looking in chapter 15 at the seven plagues, uh, the seven angels who had seven plagues and the wrath of God, the judgment of God that, uh, that is to be uh, poured out in 
the seven bowls of wrath. There's a, a correlation between the seven plagues poured out from the seven bowls of God and the plagues of Egypt, which we'll note in the course of our exposition. But as we've observed before, there's also a correspondence between the spheres and a difference in scope between the first four trumpets and the first four bowls of wrath. And in both the trumpet and the bowl cycles, the spheres and their sequences are the same. The earth, the sea, the rivers, the springs, and the sky affecting the, the heavenly lights. In the trumpet, uh, trumpet judgments, however, uh, devastation, you remember, is limited to one-third of each sphere, whereas destruction is comprehensive in these spheres when the bowls are poured out. The escalation in the scope of God's judgment here reveals the finality of these judgments among uh, the, the judgment cycles of Revelation, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of wrath. Uh, we saw that in, 50, in chapter 15 and verse 1, uh, when John sees another sign in, in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. This is a final outpouring of God's wrath upon apostate Israel. First symbolized in the seven seals, partially then symbolized again in part uh, in uh, the seven trumpets, and now in finality as it will be expressed in that final outpouring in AD 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple on unbelieving Israel. In the first four verses of chapter 15, the saints sing a song of victory, praising God for his judgments. The second vision in chapter 15, verses 5 to 8, shows us the open sanctuary of God from which the judgments of God come, from which the seven plagues in the seven bowls of wrath. Come, like the first four seals and the first four trumpets, the four, first four bowls belong together. And in these first four bowls, God's wrath is highlighted. The first four bowls of wrath highlight four aspects of God's wrath that vindicate, uh, vindicate his Anger against sin. In the first four bowls, we discover, uh, in the first place, the holiness of divine wrath. Secondly, the vengeance of divine wrath. Thirdly, the justice of divine wrath. And fourthly, the sovereignty of divine wrath. The holiness, the vengeance, the justice, and the sovereignty of God's divine wrath. We'll look first then at the holiness of divine wrath. 
Revelation 16.1 describes the outpouring of uh, the bowls of wrath on the land, beginning with his command. Then I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary, verse 1, saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the land the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now chapter 15 concluded with a picture of the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies in heaven, so filled with smoke that no one was able to enter uh, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Chapter 15 and verse 8. This being the case, none other than God himself could be speaking now from within his sanctuary and giving this command to the seven angels to go and pour out the seven bowls on the land. It's from this place of perfect beauty and love and splendor the inner sanctuary in the Holy of Holies that God's wrath proceeds, that God's wrath is poured out on the land. And that fact tells us the most important thing for us to know about God's anger. It's a holy wrath. God's anger is a holy wrath that responds in awful, and I mean awful in the sense of awesome, awful violence precisely because of God's mortal perfection. in the morally heinous nature of sin. Now, when critics ask how God can react so violently against his creatures, the first and most important answer is that God is infinitely and perfectly holy, and that therefore... The sins of humanity have elicited God's wrath. His holiness must abhor evil. And therefore, the evil of sin alone explains God's wrath. David explains in Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6, You're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. In his work, the existence and attributes of God. The Puritan Stephen Sharnock wrote, A love of holiness cannot be without a hatred of everything that is contrary to it. God necessarily loves himself. So he must necessarily hate everything that is against himself. 
as he loves himself for his own excellency and holiness, he must necessarily detest whatsoever is repugnant to his holiness because of the evil of it. This aspect of holiness reminds us not to compare God's wrath to man's often sinful and quick-tempered anger. God's wrath is never an uncontrolled rage. John Stott points out that God's anger is absolutely pure and uncontaminated by those elements that render human anger sinful. B.B. Warfield writes that without wrath for sin, God would not be a moral being. For every moral being must burn with hot indignation against all wrong perceived as such if we do not react against the wrong when we see it. In indignation and avenging wrath, we are either unmoral or immoral. From the perspective of God's holiness, it's not divine wrath, but rather the criticism of divine wrath that reveals a morally defective attitude. The reason that people react so negatively to God's wrath is that they lack God's utter revulsion for evil. The biblical view presented in Westminster Shorter Catechism 84 is that every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God in this life and the next. The biblical doctrine of repentance then includes an attitude towards sin that's consistent with the character of God. The character of God's wrath. There is a, a grief and a hatred for sin that God uh, develops in us as he works holiness uh, in us. The holiness of divine wrath. This is a vindication of God's anger. Secondly, the the vengeance, the second indicating, uh, 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 the second aspect here that, that vindicates God's wrath is vengeance against his enemies. Who, who are the recipients here in Revelation 16, 1 through 9 of, of God's vengeful wrath? Chapter 16 and verse 2, the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. God's wrath falls on the unbelieving world who are servants and worshippers of his supreme opponents, the dragon, Satan himself, and those who are in league with him, the worldly agents of evil. In the world, his beasts. Jesus said, Luke eleven twenty three. He who is not with me is against me. Revelation shows this by 
you remember, by depicting all mankind as either bearing the mark of the beast or the mark of the Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation 3, uh, 13, 18, and 14, 1. The world on which the bowls of wrath are poured is a world that rejected God in rebellious unbelief, those who choose to worship idols, those who instead worship the evil powers under Satan's. God's enemies have, uh, Revelation 16, verse 6 says, poured out the blood of the saints and prophets. God's wrath is therefore, in part, a repayment for violence inflicted against his people. Paul, you remember, urges Christians, suffering believers, never to avenge themselves, but to leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, Romans 12, 19. This vengeance is now seen in the bowls of God's wrath. Revelation 16, 10 showed the martyrs, the souls of the martyrs in heaven asking, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell upon the land. In the background of God's wrath are uh, are the prayers of his suffering people. In 16.7, John reports that he heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The martyrs were earlier seen beneath the altar, and uh, in their prayers... Uh, uh, before the altar there in Revelation 8, verse 3, their, uh, their, their prayers for vengeance were offered. So, uh, so this cry reflects the suffering church's satisfaction regarding the vengeful wrath of God upon her enemies. God, in vengeance, in retributive wrath, pours out his anger upon those who have aligned themselves with the dragon and his beasts and have shed the blood of his saints. God's vengeful wrath is also a redeeming Wrath. This comes through, uh, comes uh, becomes apparent in uh, the Exodus background for these judgments poured out in here in chapter sixteen. The first bowl of wrath brought loathsome and malignant sores on the ungodly. Verse two. This corresponds to the sixth plague on Pharaoh in Egypt when God inflicted boils and sores on their skin, Exodus 9, verses 8 to 12. The the second bowl made the sea become like blood, that of a dead man, so that every living thing in the sea died, verse 3 here in Revelation 16. 
The third bowl was poured out into the rivers and the springs of water so that they became blood. Verse 4, these judgments, of course, correspond to the first plague on Egypt when the Nile was turned into blood and uh, so that all, all the fish died. Uh, Exodus 7, verses, uh, verse 21. The point is that just as God poured out his wrath onto Egypt so as to free his people from bondage and suffering, so do all God's judgments in history deliver the Christian church from afflictions in this world. The final outpouring of judgment in the first century, the judgment that is being symbolized here in Revelation chapter 16, where Revelation uh, both 15 and uh, chapters 15 and 16, that final outpouring on apostate Israel avenged the blood of the martyrs of that day, but also delivered the church from their oppressors. And the final judgment that this judgment of the seven bowls symbolizes is uh, the last day, the second coming, the final day, the end of history as, as we know it, when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, will return in all splendor and glory. And in that cataclysmic outpouring of, of the last day that, that will end the history of this age, God's people will be granted eternal victory and eternal rest. That's what the vengeance of God's wrath accomplishes in the lives of his people. A third feature that vindicates God's anger against sin is the justice of his wrath. The angel of the waters, verse 5 in our text, cries out saying, Righteous are you, O Holy One, because you judged these things. God is praised for judging those who shed the blood of, of his saints and prophets since, notice, they deserved it. Here in verse 5, God is praised. He's, he receives praise uh, from uh, the angel of the waters. Because of the wrath that he, uh, the justice of the wrath that, that he uh, poured out upon the beast and his followers. The voice of the martyrs adds here in verse 7, Yes, O Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Yes, O Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And the point for us to grasp here is that these bold judgments exact just retribution for sin. They represent God's justice 
in acting in punishment for the violation of his law. Revelation 16, verse 6 says that since they shed the blood, uh, since the wicked shed the blood of God's servants, they're given blood to drink in return. They receive God's wrath in exactly the measure that they deserve. This is keeping with the pattern of judgment taught in all the scriptures, New Testament and Old. Scholars may assert that God's judgment is is not to be seen, primarily in terms of retribution, where people are paid back according to their deeds. But this is precisely what the Bible shows. Over and, and over again. And we're foolish to ignore it and to try to paint a portrait of a God who is anything else than a wrathful, avenging God upon the wicked. Others who received direct retribution from God include Jeroboam. Recently, we've seen this in God's judgment upon Ahab and Jezebel. We see it in God's judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar. We see it in God's judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira, for example. Israel herself received retributive justice from God when her idolatry was punished by exile into an idol-worshipping land in Babylon. Now, one of the objections raised to God's just wrath is that it conflicts with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Didn't Jesus teach his followers to turn the other cheek? Didn't he say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven? Matthew 5, verses 39, 44 to 45. If God teaches non-retaliation but then himself pours out wrath and retributive justice, isn't this an example of God's telling us to do one thing while he does another? Well, the answer is yes. For the very reason that God is different from us and so able to dispense justice perfectly. In Paul's teaching, we're not to exact revenge precisely because we know that God will. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. One writer therefore observes, God would not have us to do what he does precisely because he does it. God says, do as I say, not as I do, and justly so, Because he's God, and we are not. In considering the first three bowls of wrath, we can see that they involve just recompense for sin. The worshipers of the beast bore its mark, whether to avoid repercussions 
of refusing to do so, or as a stubborn expression of their rebellion against God. God pours out sores and boils upon their flesh. They shed the blood of the righteous, so God turns their waters into cesspools of blood and death. And he does so justly because of the wickedness of their sin. Final aspect that vindicates God's anger against sin is the sovereignty of God's wrath. In verse 8, the fourth angel pours out his bowl upon the sun. And there we read that it was given to it, that it was given to the sun to scorch men with fire. Whereas the judgment of the fourth trumpet impacts a third of all the luminaries, the sun, the moon, the stars, resulting in darkness for a third of the day and night, in the ninth plague of Egypt brought three days of complete darkness. So thick, Exodus chapter 10 says that it could be felt, it was palpable in the fourth bowl of wrath. The heat of the sun is increased so that men were scorched with fire, verse 9. This is a, a reversal of, the, of, of a basic covenantal blessing that was present in the Exodus when God shielded Israel from the heat of the sun by the pillar of the glory cloud in the shadow of the Almighty, Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. This promise is repeated time and again in the Psalms and in the prophets as well. For example, in Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. But I think we're we're most familiar with this passage in Psalm 121, verses 4. Through six, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will guard your soul. John uses the passive voice here in uh, Revelation. In the book of Revelation in general, he uses the passive voice of of the verb to indicate divine control. And here, he stresses God's sovereignty by telling us in verse 8, that it was given to the sun to scorch men with fire. And in verse 9, he's even more explicit with regard uh, regard to, uh, to, to God's sovereignty. God has power over these plagues. So the Bible elsewhere, and John here, in Revelation 16 knows nothing of a God who sits 
helplessly on the sidelines, watching the world go by, nor does uh, the apostle here acknowledge a God who is too nice to send judgments upon us, upon the wicked. He knows that the plagues falling upon Israel are the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. Psalm 46, verse 8. But idolatrous Israel refuses to submit to God's lordship over them, like the beast whose head is crowned with names of blasphemy, Revelation 13.1, whose image they worship, they blaspheme the name of God who has power over these plagues. As it was repeatedly said of impenitent Pharaoh that he did not repent to give God glory, Israel has become an Egypt hardening uh, its heart. And like Egypt, unrepentant Israel, apostate Israel, will be destroyed. And this is a warning. These, these bowls of wrath are, are a warning to all of us that if we have not genuinely looked to Christ Jesus, if we haven't genuinely trusted in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have not received Jesus through faith, all of the judgments symbolized here will come out of this holy and beautiful place in heaven against us. Proud sinners will be stricken to the ground as a result of God's just judgment for sin unless they repent and turn to Jesus Christ. And it's incumbent upon those who have turned and embrace Jesus Christ by faith to offer praise to God for his wrath. Yes, for the wrath of God that is poured out upon the wicked. That's precisely what's done here. That's precisely what's being represented to us symbolically here in this vision to John. The angels are praising God for pouring out his wrath upon the wicked. For, for his avenging wrath in judging sin. And those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith must add their voices to those of the angels in worshiping God with great praise, saying, Righteous are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, because you judged these things, for they have poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. God's wrathful vengeance against the wicked is praiseworthy. That's what Revelation chapters 15 and 16 teach us. 
And so we must join our voices with the martyrs. Yes, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And we must vindicate God's wrath against progressive evangelicals in the church today who are claiming that there is no such thing as a vengeful God who pours out his wrath upon the wicked, who are claiming that this is uncharacteristic of God, who are claiming that there was no need for the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, that Christ went to the cross a cross for, for nothing, that his blood was shed for nothing. The destruction of the wicked is the praise to God of the righteous, and it's the joy of the righteous. It should be the joy of the righteous, and we must recognize that the wicked deserve it. And that the only reason that we don't deserve it any longer is because we are covered in the the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. The only reason that wrath has been removed from us, the only reason that the, the wrath and curse of God, the only reason that we have been delivered from God's wrath and curse is because we have been Uh, is because the shadow of the Almighty shields us from the blazing wrath of God poured out against sinners. And that's a reason for rejoicing. Because the wicked deserve it. It may sound crude to put it that way, but that's only because the church has stopped living in the Psalms, and especially in Psalm 94, as we read today. Admittedly, we're we're sometimes shocked by the biblical attitude on these matters, but it's always good news when God's people are delivered from their oppressors, when their oppressors are judged and removed. This is hard for us to see now. It's hard for us to to think that one day uh, we will rejoice in God's righteous wrath, in his just wrath, in his vengeful wrath, in his holy wrath, uh, that in heaven we will rejoice in these things even as we ought, uh, and, and perfectly, uh, even as we ought to rejoice in, in them now. In, in, when, we, it, when we are there in eternity, when we reach that state of perfection, it will become perfectly clear to us why we ought to rejoice and why we ought to praise God for his avenging wrath. Here, Paul says, we see through a glass, dimly. Then we shall see face to face. 
And when we see the God of all glory face to face, His holy, avenging, sovereign, and just wrath will be beautiful and glorious to our souls. Let's pray. God, our Father, we humble ourselves before your almighty throne. We confess, O Lord, that these things are lofty. Some of these things, O Lord, are hard to understand and even harder to embrace now. But we pray that you would give us eyes through the Spirit's help to see these things as they are and uh, here in Revelation. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. And we do praise you, our God and our Father, for your almighty judgments, for your holy and just wrath poured out upon the wicked. We rejoice, O God, that you are pleased to deliver your people, to redeem them out from under the wrath and curse uh, that you have placed upon those who sin against your holy law and refuse to repent and look to Christ. We rejoice, O Lord, that you have saved us out of that wrath, and we rejoice, O Lord, uh, that you are pleased to deliver your people from their oppressors. We ask that you continue to do so. Even as we prayed for the land of India this morning, so we pray for the many lands across this, uh, uh, this globe that for, for which we could have prayed uh, this morning. Many who are being afflicted for the sake of Christ, uh, who are under the yoke of oppression uh, because of uh, the wicked governments of this world. Deliver them, O Lord. Come come alongside them and comfort them and encourage them and give them uh, the holy strength to endure persecution and to maintain their faithful testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.